Well, for starters, you know, would you be so kind as to give me like, I mean, your background is extremely impressive, but give, give us like um, some of the high level, like, uh, I guess, like an overview of your background, okay. and how you got to the place where you're doing the work that you're currently doing. Sure. So uh, probably about 25 years ago, I uh, was accepted. I wanted to be a gastroenterologist because uh, a young man challenged me and said, we don't take women in GI. And I said, okay, well, I'll be your first woman. And uh, my husband will always tell you, if you want me to do anything, you just have to challenge me. And uh, so I was challenged and basically got into GI fellowship at University of Florida as the first woman GI. I did it with the intent of doing one year of research. I didn't think at the time that research was going to be my world. I was kind of uh, the physician that wanted to be in the trenches doing GI, you know, scoping GI bleeders in the middle of the night and seeing a lot of patients, etc. And over the years, my path, um, you know, my attending when I graduated GI fellowship said, you're really good at research. You should really continue. Sammy Ockham, that was my attending. And I said, at University of Florida, and I said, oh, well, you know what, I'll keep it going. And I used to do 10% uh, research back then, 25 years ago. And then over the last uh, 16 years, 17 years, probably went from like 10% to 50% to 90% research. And uh, research, um, you know, for the pharmaceutical industry, but also the uh, natural uh, path industry, uh, testing herbs for ulcerative colitis, for Nestle, for example, uh, testing various products. We had a enzyme therapy for Korea for ulcerative colitis, um, you know, breast milk for C. diff. So we've tested a bunch of products. Um, I have found um, the clinical trial world to excite me a little bit more than the conventional GI. Um, and that's probably why I, I went that path. Um, I find that the, it's very challenging to practice as a gastroenterologist. It's, um, you know, the insurance companies don't make it easy. It's fighting constantly with, you know, to get a CAT scan ordered or to get a medication approved and you're constantly on the phone. And this is not why I signed up for. I signed up to heal patients. And, you know, at the beginning I used to joke, I used to say, well, I'm saving one colon at a time from colon cancer. And then I went in with, I'm saving one disease at a time with pharmaceutical companies. And now I'm in the microbiome business and I feel like I'm saving one bacteria at a time. So <laughs> it's, it's a completely different world. So I think what happened to me is in the clinical trial 20 years ago, everything was antibiotics. 25 years ago, everything was antibiotics. We would give antibiotics for every single disease. You had acne, here's antibiotics. You had psoriasis, here's antibiotics. Then 20 years ago, the whole push of uh, biologics, Umara, Remicade, you know, all these drugs. And then um, I was known in the clinical trial as the queen of C. diff, which is a bacteria that you get from taking antibiotics, uh, interestingly enough. And when C. diff, I couldn't find an antibiotic to kill off this little bacteria, I would basically use fecal transplant, which is a procedure that Dr. Thomas Barodi um, was the pioneer of, but it was taught to me from a friend of mine, Neil Stolman, uh, when I was a fellow, who I'll always remember being at a meeting, and he would take me from my poster where I was presenting my, meet, my, my research, and he would say, look, the future is in SH.T. And I would say to him, Neil, they call me Gucci girl in the GI lab. If you make me play with poop, I'm going to hate you. 
And sure enough, now I'm deep analyzing this and in this world. And fecal transplant, which is basically the procedure of taking stools from a healthy individual and putting it in an unhealthy, has a lot of uh, has shown to have a lot of merit for various diseases when done properly. Definitely for C diff, uh, 99% of patients, if done well, actually succeed in treating C diff. But we've also seen other things like. Uh, you know, if we take stools from a happy person to a depressed person, depressed person becomes happy. Um, you know, a uh, uh, happy person to a bipolar person, that kind of changes the bipolar disorder. So we've seen some little cases here and there to the point that I started seeing on my desk of clinical trials stools in a capsule. And that's when I, you could say I went rogue as a doctor doing clinical trials and I rebelled a little bit about, against the whole pharmaceutical and said, wait a minute, we're now putting poop in capsules and we don't even know what we're doing. So I opened a company called Progenobiome with the intent to understand the microbiome better. So, and it was interesting because it's been an interesting path because a year and a half ago we started, it was really all divine intervention that brought me angels. Like, you know, when you're doing things the right way, the world opens up to you. You know, you've probably experienced that yourself. You know, if you go on the right path, all of a sudden people come to you and, and you start, you know, getting momentum that you didn't have before. And when I started looking into the microbiome, I started understanding a little bit better what I was seeing before and after fecal transplant. And I was supposed to be doing, a, and I got the attention last year, I got to speak at about 22 meetings around the world on the microbiome and my work and the findings of autism, what we saw in the microbiome of autistic children, what we saw in the microbiome of, of uh, Crohn's patients, and to the point that actually the FDA approved me to do fecal transplant on kids with autism before all this happened with, with wow. COVID-19. So, and I have a good relationship, you know, and I mean a respectful relationship with the FDA. They've been in my office, have audited me, we're, we're by the book. I'm a stickler for quality of research. So I think that's, uh, that's, you know, and I've given lectures, I've given a lecture on the microbiome at the NIST level. So I think, you know, they see what I'm doing. They see I'm trying to understand. And so what I did is I basically started, unlike other companies that analyze the microbiome, I started clinical trials on the microbiome. Because I felt that if we're going to say something like, well, this bacteria causes Crohn's disease, it needed to be done in a clinical trial like we do pharmaceutical companies. So I basically created about 33 clinical trials that we submitted through a regulatory body, Institutional Review Board. And we started analyzing about 400 samples. We got the attention of a lot of academics, doctors, you know, my friend Paul Fierstad at Yale, my friend Colleen Kelly at Brown. Um, Jessica Allegretti from Harvard, uh, you know, so many doctors, Mason, uh, you know, from Cedar sinai we had so many doctors uh, from MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic, etc., to the point that we decided, you know what, we have enough data, all of us as doctors on fecal transplant, let's do a meeting and educate people on fecal transplant and the microbiome, and I was going to show my data in Malibu on March 28th, so actually it was going to be kind of the birth of the microbiome and what a perfect place than Malibu because we all know Malibu is very like natural they're like you know holistic stuff they like you know not they're all about the planet and saving the planet and and being conscientious of like wasting and 
protecting the animals and the whales, et cetera, and, pl and anti-plastic. So what a perfect place to bring up something as you know, uh, natural as the microbiome and fecal transplant. And so we had the meeting and then of course COVID, I was watching the whole situation in China um, right before the meeting because I didn't know whether my meeting was gonna keep going as I was seeing China. And when I started looking, you know, as a doctor who owns a genetic sequencing lab that analyzes all these microbes, I started looking at the strain of the virus in China. And then I was looking at the strain of the virus in Italy, and I noticed they were different. So that scared me. And I stopped the meeting because I said, this is too dangerous, and we don't know who's been exposed to what. And really, we need to kind of stop what we're doing and stay home. So I think I... And you follow me on Facebook, so you probably have seen the alarm that I was sounding, you know, stay home. Uh, you know, we don't understand what's going on, different strains. And, um, you know, thank God for that movement. And I thank God for, you know, the people in Hollywood that have, you know, you know, kind of spearheaded staying home movement. Because I think it let us as scientists try to understand it and push the clinical trials to understand this. And so uh, now... Um, with the beginning, I started calling. So the beautiful thing about being in clinical research is we're linked up with the whole world. And we have doctors from China that I'm friends with. In fact, one of them was supposed to come to the meeting. And, uh, you know, I called them and I emailed them. What's the situation? So I was getting the real information as opposed to what you hear on the news. And then I was calling Italy and then I translated... Uh, I translated articles. In fact, I had a couple of my friends on Facebook that I was like, I have an article written in, in, in Italian. Can you translate it? So I got to see all the data and I got to analyze what was working. When I got to see what was working, and of course, I'm in the clinical trial business of putting you know, pharmaceutical products into market, I decided to start clinical trials on COVID and a formulation that I believed would help. And so that's where we are today. So we got approved for two of the biggest clinical trials. One is a prophylaxis clinical trial. The other one is a treatment trial. Uh, we have uh, five more in the pipeline from, you know, potentially treating intensive care unit patients um, to understanding the microbiome of coronavirus. That's really important to me because I think the answers are in the gut. And so this is what we're going through. We're working with the... Um, you know, the review boards to get us approved. Like I said, we got approved by the FDA for two trials. We got a bunch of doctors that are going to help out. And, and I signed the alarm on LinkedIn. So I got a bunch of a whole team uh, that I'm, I'm kind of like old fashioned on paper. So I got a whole team of like, you know, writers, quality people, that recruitment people, uh, project lead, lab supplies, everybody has joined in and said, yeah, you know what, you're doing it the right way. Because We've been, my team and I have been working nonstop, I think I sleep about two hours, um, writing all this and getting everything. This, these are two big trials. We don't wanna be bombarded with patients, but once we're ready to recruit, we're gonna basically put it, post it on clinicaltrials.gov. And so that's where I am. So go ahead, that's spoken to <laughs> you. I have a long story, it's a long story, sorry. Well, you know, a lot of what I believe that you are very knowledgeable of is what the world is missing. So let's take this a baby step back. Yes. And the baby step would be share with the novice what we mean by microbiome. 
So microbiome is um, an invisible world of bacteria that doesn't breathe oxygen that lives in your gut. But it's also, it goes further, it's all the bacteria around you. It's the bacteria in the nose, in the mouth, on the skin. You know, we have bacteria in the skin as well. So it's the invisible world that we don't see. And what's so beautiful about that invisible world is when you start looking into it, so I always say I start with the foundation as a scientist that there is a God first, and then the rest I accept. And I see you're wearing the cross, so you and I have to be <laughs> in God, right? Yeah. So you have to start with the foundation that there is a God. And then once you accept that, then you understand, you start looking at the miracles. When you look at the microbiome, which is trillions and trillions of bugs in your gut, that are in charge of disease, right? That when the balance of those bacteria, you're perfectly healthy. But when you have a lot of bad bacteria that is going up and your good bacteria is down, you have disease, right? So we see it in Crohn's disease when we see patients that have no, no diversity, no bacteria in their gut, you know that's why they have the disease. And on top of that, they may have an overgrowth of a certain bacteria that causes their disease. Same thing in depression, same thing in bipolar disorder. Everything is in that balance of the gut. So when you see that, it allows you to get a glimpse into, you know, you, into a world that's invisible, but that teaches us a lesson, right? And what is the lesson here? The lesson is here we have a virus that is invisible, attacking the bugs in our gut that makes us healthy. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the world works at a microscopic level. It is what we don't see that is the answer. It's not what we see. You and I, you know, men, women, different races, different cultures, doesn't matter. It's all at the microscopic level. And the microbes determine the person. The microbes make you happy. The, the balance of the microbes make you happy. The balance of the microbes make you disease or not disease. You know, when a person is constipated, they're miserable, right? Now, is that constipation because they have an overgrowth of a certain bacteria? Well, then that bacteria is really responsible for making them miserable, right? So it's all in the balance. It's all about restoring that balance. So we, when, and when you look at, look, I take a, finger stool, a fingernail of stools and I analyze it at the microscopic level and we have the technology now to send it to the sky and to the cloud and then basically match all these genes. And when you can find from a tiny little speck of stools, 15,000 bacteria that are all living together and they all play a role in creating disease, longevity, non-longevity, it's unbelievable. You see the power of divine intervention. You see, the more you look into that abyss of bacteria, you see a power that's governing all that. And it's not human beings. We come in this planet, we go from the planet. It's not the animals. It's really the microbiome. I think a big revelation for me was during the Woolsey fire where, you know, the whole, my whole backyard burnt and then we saw everything burn, right? And, and you've probably seen in Malibu, everything was black and everything. And, you know, a month later, you started seeing nature again and beautiful flowers and beautiful grass. And even after a disaster, life came back again. What does that tell you? Life, the planet will continue to exist 
we as humans are guests on the planet. We need to understand what the planet is all about. We need to understand the microbiome. I went into medicine to understand where do we go after we die. That's been my path. Um, and little did I know that, and I used to be, I was five years old and I would pray to God from my balcony to ask, to show me the path. Where do we go after we die? I didn't ask about, you know, marriage or kids, all that was bonus, but I asked God, show me the path. Where do we go after we die? And, you know, here we are in the microbiome. I'm seeing it, the same bacteria that we are born with from our mothers. There's bacteria in my gut from the times of Abraham. I mean, I, I looked at the species of all my bacteria that's in my gut and viruses, and there's bacteria and viruses that date from the time of Abraham, right? So when you see that, you say, you know what? Maybe the whole microbiome is, is, is just transferred from mother to child to, to grandchild, et cetera, et cetera. The process of dying is exactly that. It's basically bacteria taking over, right? So the bacteria has a power. It's still moving on. It's still alive. You know, bacteria like Clostridium difficile, which I attempted to kill to begin with, is actually has been around for 10 million years. That's powerful. That's, you know, beyond. So That's, that's very, and it's always, it's intriguing to me in my field of weight loss. Yeah. how so many people aren't familiar with the role of microbiome and making it possible for someone to optimize their experience. Right. And it's cool to see all the new studies that are coming out to support it with the fecal yeah. transplants, et cetera. Um, so knowing that we have healthy bacteria, some of the things that are causing some problems, like I'm getting ready to do this thing on CNN, and one of my things is, you know, you want to optimize the diversity or the health of your, your right. bacteria. And there's a lot of people popping antibiotics. Right. Okay. Right. Can you share with those who are listening how antibiotics can be causing a significant amount of damage to your microbiome, which also contributes to lessening the strength of your immune system? So what antibiotics, so let's go back to what is an antibiotic, right? So if you look back at what is an antibiotic, it's basically a fungus of a potato, right? So vancomycin, for example, you know, is a bacteria. Um, that was found, you know, that they call it like Mississippi uh, mud, I think is, is vancomycin. Um, penicillin was figured out from a fungus of a potato that was basically somebody, uh, you know, they, they created a, um, they, they grew the bacteria and then all of a sudden a fungus touched the agar plate where the bacteria was and then all of a sudden the bacteria disappeared. That's how they figured it out. So when you think about what are antibiotics? Antibiotics, for the most part, are bugs. So it's one bug fighting another bug. What are vaccines? Vaccines are the same thing. They're bugs fighting other bugs. Now, they could be a live bug, they could be a dead bug, but essentially it's, again, trying to recreate the balance. Same thing with probiotics. I mean, probiotics alter the gut balance, right? If you have the wrong probiotics for you. So I, was, I analyzed the... Um, stools of a gastroenterologist, a pediatric gastroenterologist who was having some GI problems. And it started about 10 years ago. It was kind of a chronic irritable bowel syndrome. And I analyzed her stools and actually she had very little uh, bifidobacter, which as you know, is you know, one of the bugs that we think is a good bacteria, right? 
And so I analyzed and she has very low and she said to me, but I don't understand. I've been taking these probiotics all along. So I said, well, clearly those probiotics are not compatible with your gut. So we have to be, you know, I think the idea and what I'm trying to push with understanding the microbiome is the idea of uh, one pill fits all or one probiotic fits all or one antibiotic fits all may not work for everybody. So in other words, I could take penicillin for if I have streptococcus uh, or if I have strep throat, I can take penicillin and I'm going to be fine. However, I can also, you know, not be fine. So it's all what's in my gut, what's the balance of all those bugs? You have to remember, it's trillions of bugs. Are you altering them? Are you making it worse, making it better? You don't know what you're starting with. So you have no idea what's going to be happening, right? So, but antibiotics on the most part, on a high dosage, can affect and kill off your good bacteria, which then keeps the bad bacteria in heightened, right? And so that's when you start having problems and that's where the the thought and the birth of, um, you know, this whole probiotics came out. But unfortunately, the problem with probiotics is they're not supervised. They're not, there's no oversight. So anybody puts on the bottle probiotics and sells it. There was a study that actually looked at 17 probiotics and showed that 16 out of 17 were not the real stuff on the bottle. Wow. So that's scary because if you're taking a dead bacteria, right, into a live gut and you're thinking you're having a live bacteria that's helping you, but you're healthy and all of a sudden you're taking a whole bunch of bad stuff, that's just going to be counterproductive. And so unfortunately, there is no oversight. So people have criticized the FDA and nobody wants the FDA in their in their business, right? Because they're like, oh, the FDA is so tough. And, and believe me, I'm, I, it's, they're tough for a reason. You want oversight. I'm like, I want somebody to look at my vitamins. I want to make, especially now with this whole thing with, with China and all these products and whether the, you know, the coronavirus came from China or not, you know, obviously we want to make sure whatever comes from China doesn't have anything in there. So am I taking a vitamin D that potentially could be contaminated with a virus? I don't know. So oversight is so important. Oversight and research is so important. You need a doctor to look at the product. You need a doctor to look at the patient, to give the right data. Oversight, let me tell you, the FDA, I'm so impressed with them because these trials, they have been working nonstop. My trials I got a phone call. I got an email at 11.45 p.m. that my trials were accepted. Two of my trials were accepted. That means it was 2.45 a.m. in wherever that FDA agent was in New York or Pennsylvania. And she was responding. And these these doctors that are working at the FDA level, and I, I think what most people don't understand is that there's a lot of doctors working at the FDA level doing these oversights, looking at every protocol carefully, and so, and, and agents on the field, I've had the pleasure of meeting a bunch of agents. They're lovely young ladies and men that come in. They're like meticulously looking at all the charts. They want to make sure, did you randomize the patient properly? Did you use the, did you put the right medicine for the right patient? Or did you just pretend that the patient was right. getting, <laughs> you could get paid by the pharmaceutical company? Was the patient followed? Did you call the patient properly? Did you bring them into the clinic? Somebody needs to look at these charts because there's so many 
companies that are so trying to pass a fast one and getting these products fast to market to just make a quick buck that you need the oversight of the FDA. And on the whole, I mean, I've been audited, and believe me, it's a nightmare every time you get audited because they're in your office for two weeks, they're looking at everything. And it's extremely stressful for everybody because you're, you know, you have to be there and you have to answer all the questions and you have to know all your stuff because they will quiz you on the patients and they will say, well, what about this patient? Did you see this? And, um, and they'll test you, but they test you because they want to see your credibility. They want to see how legit are you? How righteous are you? Are you the kind that's just going to be paid by a pharmaceutical company to just pass a product because you got paid a million dollars? Are you the type that's going to be saying, you know what, I'm going to look at everything carefully um, to do all this. So the research is tough. It's, uh, it's very tedious. Uh, I can tell you, I bang my head on the counter every day. And every day I ask my, like, especially with these protocols, going through regulatory boards. I have 10 people reviewing my protocols that I wrote and I'm rushing to get them out to get the pills for the patients. But at the same time, there's 10 people making sure that I'm not killing my patients, right? Yeah. Because they want to say, so they come back with all sorts of things like, well, Dr. Hazen, you're not monitoring the patient. And why did you give this dosage? And where is it manufactured? And, and you have to answer. So you want to get the protocols going, but at the same time, you're, you're banging your head against the wall because you're frustrated with it's not going as fast enough. And they're not under, I'm always, you know, my, one of my problems is I'm always like a hundred miles ahead of everyone. And I already know where I want to go, but I need to kind of like do the first step to get there. And so it becomes a frustration and I'm always like focused and I get perceived as, you know, different because I'm, (laughs) but you know, you're always like focused and everybody's like, Oh my God, she's so rude. And she's so this, and you know, I'm just focusing on my work. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not here to, you know, otherwise I'd be gardening. So trust me, I don't want to do this. I didn't want to be part of this, but I felt like I had a lab that was analyzing the microbiome, analyzing the strain of this virus. And I have the equipment and I know how to do clinical trials. So when this, and I was, I educated myself really fast on the topic. And I figured, you know what, I'm probably, you know, the most legit person to do this. But more importantly, I have nine doctors in the family. And I want to make sure that when they go to work, they're protected. I want to make sure they have pills, you know, that prophylaxis them. I have a husband that's a cardiologist on the front line. You know, I haven't even, we, we sleep in separate bedrooms. I haven't touched him, you know, for like a month since this started. Uh, two girls, we're not touching them. We're separate. I want to go back to my life. So I felt like I needed to step into the mud and, and do this to get it done. So I can at least sleep at night saying, you know what, I'm comfortable. There's a pill, there's a prophylaxis. I'm not selling another vaccine or another pill. You know, let's see the data. And I tell all my friends, anybody that's criticized protocols and whatever, I'm like, listen, show me the data. You wanna, you wanna create a new protocol, go for it. Submit it to the FDA, show me the data. At the end of the day, that's what, the, that's what it's all about. One of my professors used to say to me, whenever I would say, well, what about oregano for this, for cramps? And he'd say, well, show me the data. Where's, where does it show that oregano is better than not oregano? So it's all about that. <laughs> you know, because people will sell you all sorts of things, right? Oh, yeah. They'll say, you know, uh, beet juice is good for this. Where's the data that you've taken beet juice and you've taken nothing and you're showing me a placebo controlled study or you're showing me results, right? So 
Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of that going on and it seems to be spreading yes. and people are buying all types of products. Yes. Um, they're falling prey to a lot of folklore uh, yes. because they're concerned. Yes. Now, you said earlier that there were marketing, marketing is intense on these products. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know. And if you don't know, then one of the things I always say is that the uninformed are unfortunately influenced by the misinformed. Yes. Yes. And so you have a lot of people who are just hawking products, and I right. totally get it. But you said something earlier that you noticed that the strand in China was different than the strand in Italy. Right. That's that's big concern. Yes, it is concerning. It's concerning for two reasons. They actually did a study, and I forgot, I've read so many articles recently, but they, there's a study that actually showed that there's as much as 48 strains of this virus out there. So my concern with this virus is that, let's say you're fine and you survived the first strain, but then you go back outside and you're exposed to strain number two, then strain number two could be the one that kills you. So, you know, one of the reasons I'm concerned with my husband, I'm separated from my husband, is he's exposed to constantly to different strains in the hospital. So I, I'm concerned that we have different strains. So that's why it's so important to look at the strains of this virus. I think... That's where the understanding of the virus is. We don't know how this virus was created. I mean, there's a lot of hypotheses out there. You know, was it in a lab? Was it in a bat market? First of all, why are people eating bats? I have no idea. <laughs> that nonsense. That's right. ridiculous. Why are people playing with bats as a scientist? Stop that nonsense. Keep the bats in their caves and don't touch them. Some animals you shouldn't be touching. You know, I have rattlesnakes in my backyard. I don't go play with them and say, oh, let me see how the venom looks like. No, I leave them alone. You have to respect nature. You have to respect certain things. And a bat in a cave is in a cave for a reason. Don't touch it. You didn't touch it. We wouldn't have these problems. So I think at some point, you know, humanity needs to be a little bit more sensitive of what it's doing and what it's destroying and what it's not destroying. I think well, no, one, no one's talking about the the fact that there may be 48 plus right. strains out there. Yeah. Um, another thing is people aren't talking about is the importance of keeping healthy bacteria, uh, strengthening your immune system as you go right. through this. Right. Uh, do you have any tips for that? Like in your so, experience? As you've seen, my protocols include vitamins. So it's, uh, you know, it's the protocol that Dr. Zelenko uh, did from New York and Dr. Raul from France uh, with the two um, treatments but I added on top of that vitamin C, D, and zinc. I may be off with that, but I'm going with my gut feeling and I'm hoping that's the answer. I'm not telling anybody to do that because I need to see the data. Um, but as soon as I know what it's showing in the microbiome and whether it's improving people, I'll be the first one to tell you. Um, so I'm not giving any recommendations right now. I would say you know, the best thing and what I have found to help people with their immunity is really a peaceful gut you know put yourself at peace if you're the type that's very anxious well cut down your anxiety do yoga do meditation you know um, do whatever makes you happy whether it's painting whether it's ceramics whether it's gardening those things that keep you in check mentally physically decreases your stress remember acidity kills more bacteria than antibiotics right and where does acid come from the stomach, right? And so if you're anxious, you're building up a lot of acid that's killing off your good bacteria. So really keeping a check on the anxiety 
and anxiety behavior and knowing, hey, you know what, I'm a type A personality and I'm super high strong, I'm super anxious, but I need to counteract that anxiety with something else, whether music, meditation, breathing, gardening, those are very important. So I think to keep a good immunity, that's one. The other thing I push people is local honey. I'm a big, you know, if you remember, Albert Einstein used to say, um, if the bees disappear, humanity disappears. And I think he was right in this because what he said was um, what he believed, what I'm going to take it to the next level. What is the honey? The honey is the microbiome of the bees, right? So local honey is probably the best thing you could put for your body. Um, you know, obviously yogurts, uh, natural yogurts. I'm very big on, you know, Activa products is fine. So all these things that keep you in balance, um, I, I approve of. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> because the problem is some people have gastritis, so they may be sensitive to the vitamin C. Some people may not tolerate the zinc. So it really has to be done in a clinical trial to see. I agree. There's a, it's funny, you test on a few things. One of my dear friends died a few years ago. Sorry. He died at the age of, right before he turned 115. Um, wow. His name is Bernando. And so I met Bernando when he was 111. Wow. And um, he got a big award as a sanitarian. And then I got to meet with him on, when he was 112, 113. And I took a film crew with me when he was 113. We went to his house. And this guy was born in 1901. Wow. And his father was a herbologist. Nice. So he was very health conscious. Sure. Um, and just to put it in more perspective, uh, Bernando was, I think, 65 when he heard Dr. King do the big famous speech. Aww. So this guy has been around for a while. History, you know, right? Yeah. I talked to him about, like, he met uh, George Washington Carver, told me about their conversation. Wow. So for me, to meet him was amazing. And he shared with me two things that you touched on. One, I was, we were talking about weight loss. He says, Robert, follow the gut. So people always ask me, like, what, what was his big thing? He was big on gut. Yes. He was big on it. Like, so not a scientist, but after living for that many years, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, Hippocrates said, you know, everything starts in the gut. 2,500 years ago, he had the gut feeling. Maimonides, who was a physician and a rabbi, used to also say, everything is about the food you're eating. Right, so there's a huge, we, we've known all along, we have this gut feeling, it's our gut bacteria telling us. You yeah. know, and, and I'll take it another step, that, those butterflies in the stomach, when you like someone, that's your bacteria showing you you're compatible to that person. It's symbiosis. So, and when you don't like someone, it's the same thing, it's that, you know, antagonistic behavior. You know, you feel the energy of someone. It all, it's all in the gut. Well, you, you know a woman by the name of Candace Pert? Uh, heard, yeah. Uh, she wrote a book called Molecules of Emotion. Okay. And she worked at NIH for many, many years. Yes. And she discovered from a scientific standpoint that every receptor throughout our body, there's a clone in our gut. Sure. And um, her book is amazing. And once she spoke in uh, Westlake, and I find out the day after, which I think I, I've heard of her. I've heard of her. Yeah, I haven't yeah. read the book, but uh, I've really good. I mean, it's a nice thick nice. book, but you would appreciate it because she was a well, she was a single mom. She was, mm -hmm. I mean, she just went through a lot to get to where she was or got to. But her work is amazing because she's like the bridge between sciences and 
what a lot of people are walking around feeling. Nice. Uh, but with Bernando, you know, he talked a lot about gut. Well, the physician who I, 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 so when I started this path of trying to understand the gut, I went to Dr. Sidney Feingold, who wrote the book on anaerobic bacteria, and he lived till night, so he passed away during the Woolsey fire, and I got a phone call from the family that I was getting all his books, all his papers, and I was, so it was kind of almost like a sign from God that I'm taking over this research. And he lived till 97. And I really believe the reason he lived so long is because he was playing with so many bugs. So, <laughs> you know, they, they immunized him. So, and he was ready to go. So. Well, you know, there's, there's another thing that you shared that really opens up my eyes. Because, you know, as I watch people on TV, like Oprah's getting ready to do this big thing where about yeah, the fact that so many African-Americans based on percentage of people dying from COVID-19 yes. are African-Americans. And then I'm gonna do some work, I think on uh, C-SPAN, I'm gonna do something on Thursday, Friday to talk about that topic. But the thing that resonates with me is how you said, your kids are in another room, you, you, know, you guys aren't touching the way you would normally touch, your husband's sleeping in another room. I mean, if you're taking it that seriously, and then I turn on the TV or go on Facebook and people are showing how people are getting together, playing basketball at the local, I mean, really? Let, let me tell you, it's so crazy because my parents have been home since this started about a month since, you know, in America, we had the first case. A week prior, I told my parents to just stay home. I'm like, mom and dad, I've not analyzed your stools. I don't know what your level of bifidobacter is. I'm, we're keeping you at home, right? And my sister's a physician, I'm a physician, and we're scared to bring our parents to our houses because we could potentially give them a different strain and, and risk their lives. So right now they're in their little bubble in their apartment. Of course, I think, you know, parents together at a certain age, there's all these, you know, uh, fights and whatever, but you know, my parents have been fine. But um, <laughs> this, this is how serious we are taking it. So if I'm telling my parents, to stay home and my daughter my daughter is like you know 23 years old and i'm telling her to stay home in her apartment and i refuse for her to go anywhere you can imagine if i'm that strict that people should be equally until we figure it out listen when i call you or i facetime when i when you start seeing me kissing my husband you could say okay it's safe. I can go back. <laughs> Until then, I'm sorry. I cannot, you know, this is, and, and it's, it's, it's hard. You know, it's hard. Like my husband is, you know, he, he hates being in one side of the bed in one side of the room and he doesn't even communicate with us. And, you know, it's horrible. So I, I want to speed the research so I can go back to my life. My friend who's helped me, um, you know, um, also he wants to go back to concerts. You know, our life is not, supposed to be in four four walls you know we're supposed to be out and enjoying but unfortunately at this point i think until we understand this virus a little bit better until we feel confident that drugs are working medications vitamins are working something is working i don't think we should be so candid to say oh yeah this is a political hoax or whatever it's not it's 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 really and and this is i'll tell you the one message for me there's a message in everything, right? I mean, every negative leads to a positive. The, the, the light at the end of this is really the, that a virus shut us down. The, a virus shut the economy, stopped businesses. So we have to respect that. 
And we have to say, well, what's the meaning behind that? Maybe the meaning is for the world to come together as one. And what's beautiful about research is it's all these doctors from all over the world. We don't go political. We don't say, oh my God, it's my credit, your credit. We all work together for a solution. When India was stopping the shipping to America, you know, I got on LinkedIn and I said, well, uh, India, is that really the smart thing? Yes, maybe Plaquenil or hydro, hydroxychloroquine might help, but what if it doesn't help and then you need something that America has? You know, then you're kind of putting your people at risk. So this is where the world needs to come together. Humanity needs to come together. I, if you see on my Facebook, it's all about the religion of humanity. It's what we've learned from microbes is that all work together. It's all one has a job, another one. It's like the bees. I mean, you know, they all have a job and then they all do their thing. And then the planet is beautiful. We need to come together. We need to come together as a population. We need to come together with multiple cultures, still respecting our cultures, our individuality, our history, our, our, you know, everything, religion, race, everything, respecting that, but still at the same time, uniting with that respect. I think the thing we noticed that I've learned from the microbiome is that when people change their food intake from what they were born with, that or what they were raised on is when disease starts. So there is something beautiful about your own individual gut, your own individual fingerprint. That's what Progenobiome was all about. It's not a um, one pill fits all. It matches your gut microbiome. We all have different fingerprints. Why would we have different, why would we have the same microbiome? It's, I've been to China, Japan. It's all, there's a mixture. There's a whole world inside my gut. So that whole world is colliding inside my gut. Maybe the world, humanity needs to learn from that and be united. And so whenever I see people fighting or political fights on Facebook, I just tune out because it's so destructive from building. We need to build, not destroy. We need to unite, not fight. So I love that. You know, the, the, the second thing I was going to share with you about uh, Bernando is I'll never forget we're sitting there and he goes, so Robert, he goes, do you eat honey? I go, yes, I do. He goes, that's good. He goes, that was made by God. And um, it's very clear that it doesn't spoil. He goes, there's not many foods that never spoil. And I was like, thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> he goes. <laughs> you know, there's a lesson also. No, it's, it's true, but there's a lesson also, if you look at the tribes of Africa, they eat, you know, I mean, this is their culture, right? Who am I to judge their culture? But they're eating the zebra. They're eating the fecal material of the zebra. And then guess what they eat to, to protect them? Now, they don't have heart disease. They don't have diabetes. They don't have obesity. They eat the beehive, the whole thing, like pounds and pounds of, of honey every day that they're eating from, you know, from the beehive. So it's, you learn from that. Honey if I had my druthers, I would say for every human being to have a beehive in their backyard, repopulate the bees, rebring back the honey, put it in your, you know, this is your honey from your environment. This is what you need. So I think that's the cure. That's the, oh. that's the new probiotic. Uh, thank you for sharing that because I'm a big in honey and it's funny, I would meet people as a nutritionist and they would come to work with me and they would say, well, can I have honey in my tea? And I go, of course. And they go, oh, 
The last nutritionist I was with said that's too high in sugar. Right, right. But actually, it's interesting because honey is, uh, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't really, I mean, if you take one tablespoon, it doesn't really do that much to your uh, sugar. No, it's great. And it's like, yeah. it's almost 50 50 with glucose and fructose. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Okay, so thank you for making time to do this. My pleasure. And it was an honor to meet you, and Diane's amazing. I love um, her. Yes. As we get through this, I'm, I mean, I can't wait for you to be able to come and see our place right there in Ventura. Absolutely. Um, and I would love to, if there's anything I could ever do or volunteer, thank I would you. love to be supportive of your work. Um, thank, you. thank you. But based on what we've talked about, people are sitting back, they're afraid to touch anything, but they still got to go get food. What are like a few tips you would give? So yeah, so if everyone you, should like really listen and get it. Okay, so wear a mask because you don't want to contaminate someone if you're an asymptomatic carrier. You don't want them contaminating you. So wear a mask. Wear gloves. You have to assume that every food you're bringing in the house. First of all, never bring your shoes inside the house because you've walked outside and you're bringing in that bacteria. So just leave them outside. And then take your food. So I'm a very big on vinegar and water as a sterilizing. So I take my, um, my lettuce, my strawberries, my blueberries, and I put them in a, in a container with um, warm a little bit of warm water and a cup of vinegar. And I rinse them and that kind of sterilizes and removes all sorts of things. Um, you know, I sterilize everything. I have this little bottle, glass bottle of 99% alcohol that I spray before I get every one of my mail, every one of my packages. You don't know what's in the mailbox. You don't know if the mailman has, is infected and is bringing you mail. So it's very, very, um, you know, you have to be very vigilant on those things until we know more and until we know we're out of the woods with this virus. But on the whole, um, you know, precautions. If you're going to eat outside, just make sure that the person cooking is wearing a mask and, and gloves and, and, and not contaminating your food. Um, those are the things, uh, I'm a big believer of canned vegetables right now or canned fruits and because at least that's protected up to a certain level and not touched to humanity. To humanity. Hey, that's a great, that was a great tip. Yeah, like tuna, yeah, salmon, yeah. Can. Um, oranges, you know, you peel them so they're not really exposed. Uh, I'm not a fan. I've never been a fan of lettuce and people, people think I'm crazy when I tell them, but I always think that lettuce is probably the food for the rabbits. Um, I, lettuce is extremely exposed. We don't know whether there's pesticides on them. It's very difficult to wash. If I, if I do make a salad, I'll put the lettuce leaves in alcohol, in, um, uh, vinegar and water to just wash them. Um, so those are basic, basic uh, methods that I'm using. As a physician, obviously, I'm covered from head to toe, and I have this little video where I show proper, uh, proper gowning. It's kind of funny, but proper outfit. And I have my little bottle where I spray myself all over. I call it the perfume of, you know, 99% alcohol perfume. Uh, but this way it kind of sterilizes me in between patients and, and processing uh, things. So... Well, you know, you made a comment earlier and it made me think of something because a lot of people are saying, you know what, next year we're going to, there's going to be a lot of Corona babies, right? Because people are stuck at home. Yes, yes. And there's also a lot of breakups taking place right now, yeah. right? <laughs> oh. Not to laugh at anyone. But would you recommend like sexual, like should people be that intimate during this moment of time? 
I mean, listen, if they're staying home and they've been home and they've not gone anywhere, you know, why not? If, if one of them is at risk because they go to the hospital or they're working in the, as postmen or they're working in the food industry or, you know, there's a lot of angels out there, you know, risking their lives. I mean, you know, the postman, I, I gave my card to the postman and I said, if you're sick, please call me because I feel bad for the guy. I mean, he's right. getting all these packages. He doesn't even need know what's in the packages. What if the guy's coughing on the package and just put the virus on the box and now he's getting it right. and breathing in? So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of heroes out there and, and we have to acknowledge them. I mean, the doctors that are working without masks or using the same mask, I mean, this is this is the same mask that I've been using. And what I do is I put alcohol spray or steam it. But I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's, it's not practical. You're touching this mask like this, your hands, your vi the virus goes in there. So there's a doctor that died in New York and he knew exactly, he said, I knew exactly when I got the virus, when I was touching my mask and I got it from the mask because he didn't change the mask. Whoa. And that to me that's criminal that our doctors are not protected it's criminal so they should be using a different mask every time or at least put the mask but then put one of those surgical masks on top that you can remove so at least you have a double layer of protection um you know so these are the things that you know hazmat suits i mean from head to toe they should be covered um that when i see doctors that are their head is all exposed they don't have a coverage and they barely have any glasses to protect it. You know, the virus penetrates the cornea. So it penetrates the nose, the mouth, but also the, the eyes. So when I see doctors that are not protected with goggles, I mean, I, it breaks my heart. And so that's why one of the protocols that I created was a prophylaxis for the doctors and the nurses and the first responders because they're on the field. They're the ones, you know, risking their lives. Wow. And so... You know, if anything lesson comes out of this, I hope there's a different, you know, there's an appreciation for the heroes of healthcare and all the people that provide all the resources, you know, the postman and the food, uh, you know, the food industry and the, you know, the physicians and the nurses and the first responder respiratory techs, you know, the radiology I got, I had a whole uh, father and son were radiology um, technicians. They were, uh, fixing uh, the x-ray machine and they got, you know, in the x-ray machine, a patient went in and was coughing and the virus lives in the air for nine hours, by the way. So the, the father and son went in there to fix the machine. They didn't really think of wearing a mask because they're like, well, it's an x-ray and they got the virus and I had to, to, to treat them. So you get to see all these people and and you, know, now you said nine, you said nine hours the virus can live in the yes, air. Yes, in live in the air. So that's why it bothers me when I see lineups of people for, and we didn't touch on that, but the nasal swab, mm -hmm. first of all, 30% false negative on that nasal swab. So you're waiting in line or you're outside. How do you know the technician doesn't have it, right? As she's putting your, her hand, to you to give you the nasal swab on her hand, somebody could have coughed. And now you're exposed to that virus when you're getting tested. So even if you were negative, and even, you know, you may have gotten positive from being outside. So a lot of people are so anxious to want to know whether they're positive, but what does that change if right. <laughs> they're negative at that moment? They're not negative 
tomorrow or in 30 days. Remember, the virus incubates for 30 days. So after 30 days, if you were exposed to someone, you could potentially catch it and have the disease in 30 days and have the symptoms in 30 days. So what are you going to do about that? Are you going to test yourself every day to just calm down the anxiety? It makes no sense. So wow. I say if you're not, you know, if you're not on the workforce where you're, you know, in the food industry or in the post office industry or in the medical field, stay home, rechange your, your business, you know, work from home, revamp yourself. I mean, here you are, you're in your studio, you figured it out, right? So everybody can figure out a way to work from home. And um, and that's not, I don't think, you know, even businesses, cause we're so virtual now. I mean, in 1918, we didn't have like internet or emails, but now we have Zoom. We have like so many ways to communicate. Listen, the fact that the whole medical industry is shut down and they're seeing patients at home with teleconference is amazing. Yeah, telehealth is here to stay. I hope so because I love it. <laughs> like, you know, I can have access to my patients. I don't have to wait till Tuesday to, to see them. If I want to see them and open telehealth at nine o'clock at night, I turn it on and I see the patients and I take care of the patient, you know? Beautiful. I mean, medicine has changed. It's so much of it is like, you know, diagnostic oriented, uh, clinical history, figuring out there's so many ways to like figure out whether a patient is sick or truly urgent or not. You know, I can tell you whether you have a surgical belly from, from looking at you on television and saying, okay, well, you know what, Robert, jump up and down. Can you jump up and down? Okay, if you can jump up and down, you're, you're not guarded. Therefore, you don't have a belly that needs to be operated, you know, just from kind of evaluation. Now, if it's a different story and you can barely jump up and say, oh, you know what, Take a risk and go to the hospital and get evaluated and have somebody touch your belly. But there's so many things we can do from just examining, right? Well, I'm glad you didn't have me jump up because I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, thank you. So if you learned any updates, please yeah. let me know because we can I do, will. because what you have shared to me based on anyone I've seen on TV is so helpful. Um, if people paid attention to what you're saying and the fact that you're doing what you're saying, yes. Um, like I would like to see Donald Trump walk out with a mask. You know what I mean? Like, like show me that you're doing what you're telling us to do. Um, well, you're probably on prophylaxis, so you don't know. So that's right. <laughs> you know, I have doctors that refuse to wear masks, and I put them on prophylaxis. So I mean, they're they're taking risks. So you know, it's their lives. At the end of the day, it's freedom of choice. But I also believe that, you know, people have a responsibility. And I think, you know, who am I to judge anybody, right? I mean, everybody has a choice. It's your choice to stay home, not to stay home. But although the choice of not staying home impacts the freedom of others. So I always say freedom is only free until it doesn't impact the freedom of others. Right. Once my freedom runs a risk of killing the little woman that's at, you know, the doctor, then it's, it's not a choice. It's not a freedom anymore. So we have I to look, be responsible. Well, I look forward to your research coming to, um, to light. And I mean, I, I'm just very excited that we had a chance to talk. Um, I, I appreciate you. I've learned a lot and I want to stay in touch with you and uh, anything I can ever do to help out, get the word out, uh, raise money for, the research you're doing, 
Yeah, count me. I'm I will be calling you. Yes, because okay. <laughs> analyzed tools are expensive. So I will be calling you for the research 100%, especially for obesity. So we have actually 33 clinical trials going on before all that, where we wanted to look at the microbiome in obesity, microbiome in uh, bipolar patients, depressed, autism, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc. Right now I'm focused on this COVID-19 because I want to go back to analyzing stools of those diseases. My goal is to write the encyclopedia of these bugs with the disease. The disease. So yes, we need funding. Uh, it's very difficult. I'm not interested. You know, I, it's tough to, to raise. So it's been on, it's been on my private funds that has been pushing all this, but at some point it gets to be expensive. Okay. Well, I'm not just talking, so I'll thank do you. everything I can to help out. Thank you, Rob. All right. Thank you. And we'll do a part two. Yes, we will. Okay. Thanks a lot, you guys. Bye.